Hi, everyone, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Scale series where I'm connecting you to incredible talent, founders, visionaries, and uh, just people who really shape the world of investors and the world of business, I should say. Um, and uh, <laughs> that is a very fitting introduction for our guest today. Uh, his name is David Wield. He's the former chairman or vice chairman, rather, of the NASDAQ. And uh, he's currently the founder and CEO of Wield & Co., which we're going to get into all today. David, it's a real privilege having you on the Map Round Show. Thank you for being here. Terrific. It's nice to be here, Matt. Yeah, lots to cover today. Um, so I had the chance to get to know you and, and the incredible impact that you've had on the U.S. business environment uh, from my perspective. But for our viewers around the world who haven't had that privilege and maybe have been living in a tree and don't know who you, <laughs> who you are and what, you've, uh, what you're about, I'd love for you just to kick us off um, and fill our viewers in from around the world. Uh, give us a little bit about your background and tell us what you're up to at Wild Co. Well, look, I, I, I had a, I've had a great, you know, great career and I'm having another great career, but I started out, I ran a top 10 investment bank and I ran equity capital markets at that bank at one point, priced a thousand public equity offerings, including 500 IPOs, raised the first money for Larry Fink at BlackRock, uh, now the largest asset manager in the world, uh, uh, you know, helped save uh, Celgene that ultimately was sold to uh to Bristol Myers Squibb for seventy plus billion dollars, you know, took Nvidia public, worked on that IPO for Jensen Wang, which is now doing AI chips, but was doing all the three D uh, visualization for all your gaming and everything. So, you know, it's been. Uh, I'm a big believer in the growth economy and access to capital. So, after I was vice chairman of Nasdaq, I went and uh, and started uh, writing uh, papers about what was wrong with our stock markets and. That led to the Jobs Act, which uh, was the most important pro-capital formation legislation in a generation, actually going back to the Investment Company Act of 1940. So you could say probably two generations and uh, and uh, gave uh, it actually uh, caused the life sciences IPO market to almost instantaneously triple It uh, funded the uh, messenger RNA technology of Moderna, according to Lawrence Kim, who was the CFO, it created the whole crowdfunding securities industry. So mm. it's, uh, you know, it's been a ride. And now we're, we're, uh, we're looking to create, we're walking into that big uh, lower middle market, middle market, uh, you know, private markets and trying to bring order and uh, efficiency to it on the investment banking front. We think it's one of the most important markets to get right in the United States because it has great, uh, economic growth upside. So we're at 126 bankers in 26 states, and we aim to be at 1,000 in the next five years. Cool, David. Thank you for the introduction and the context for everyone. Um, I would like to double-click on Wield & Co. What's the, what's the issue from your perspective? What, what is the problem that you guys are looking to solve for, uh, for the world? Well, I, I think investment banking is a team sport, right? When guys get deals done, if you go into a big firm and remember, and I ran strat strategic planning and banking research sales and trading, and what you end up with is, is that every deal is a, is a project and every project requires an optimized project team. And particularly in this, you need an industry expert, you need a, a product expert. So a product would be, are you taking the company public? Uh, is the different set of skills than are you doing a high yield transaction and a and a and a a, a bond indenture? Are you are you uh, doing a public tender offer? And you need that that skill on the team. You need a different kind of sales force. Many times, people that are going to private debt are different than people that are going to high yield, or different than, than people selling treasuries. 
And so all that kind of stuff goes on. And so what happens in these little investment banks in the middle market is, is that you don't have access to the requisite experts. And so we look at that as sort of just-in-time human capital. And we want to uh, you know, make sure that with scale, you know, we can effectively, efficiently scale where properly staff any any kind of a transaction. And that's what we think is really missing from, from, uh, from uh, private markets, uh, that there's just not a, um, that you, you get a suboptimal uh, deal team. Somebody tries to be the chef, the cook, and the bottle washer, do it all. It doesn't work very well. The client gets a bad result. A lot of companies spend too much time looking for the right place to raise capital, and they hit an iceberg. They run out of money. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Um, Is that your dog uh, again? <laughs> yeah, and uh, run run out of money, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know, and, and this is we want to we want to bring greater effectiveness. I hesitate to say efficiency because our model is about making investment bankers more money and uh, helping everybody be more proficient and effective, and uh, and uh, get better outcomes for our clients and our investors. Uh, it, and and so it 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 just requires being able to organize to be able to deliver better results to uh, mm-hmm. to everyone. And we're going to circle back there in a moment, everyone. So, uh, David, I'd love to go back to the to your background, like the origin story. I'm curious to unpa- just unpack and connect the dots around you know what inspired you to become involved in the stock market and investment banking, and how did you get your start in the industry? So I was, uh, you know, I was doing graduate work in molecular genetics, and then I, uh, I, I got sort of, uh, uh, you know, de, you know, really demoralized with the pace of lab research, and it wasn't just wasn't my thing. I was a better theoretical geneticist than I was a cook in the kitchen, and at the same time, I saw Genentech go public in 1980, and uh, the stock gap from 30 to 80, and I had been having these you know debates with people about the promise of genetic engineering and uh and uh all of a sudden it was sort of crystallized by just seeing that stock do so well on its IPO and um and so the magic of being able to put capital into the hands of scientists and engineers and to solve great challenges for you know, humanity was sort of just uh you know just uh, like a siren song brought me straight to Wall Street. Um, amazing. And you obviously had a huge impact there. And I think you touched on it up front, but it was, you're, you're basically known as the father of the Jobs Act. And I'd love for you to discuss some of the key provisions of the legislation and how it has actually impacted the financial invest- industry rather since its passage. Well, there it, it's, a, it's an omnibus bill. There were actually six different bills that got wrapped into one, and there was a seventh title tacked on to you know support it with education of women and minorities and people of you know people who are poor people. But um, it it gave you uh, um, crowdfunding Reg CF, which is now up to five million dollars. Uh, it gave you uh, the general solicitation of private placements under Reg D, which is. Uh, now rule 506c that came directly from me and but we were just basically saying come on it's it's like crazy that you that you are prohibiting people from soliciting folks what's important is you know you can tell a story to anybody shout it from the mountaintops but at the end of the day you know what you care about if you're doing a private placement is that the person that purchases it is adequately sophisticated or in the case of reg cf that they don't squat, they don't risk so much money that it puts them into a deep financial 
problems. And so, you know, we just essentially said that there was a better way to do these things. And testing the waters also kind of trickled all the way through pre-IPO, which allows you to then talk to investors before you go public institutional investors. And I, I sometimes felt like I was playing like I was the little boy in the emperor's new clothes that just was was saying things that I thought other people sort of understood. And but people believed me because I was a vice I was former vice chairman of NASDAQ and I ran a top 10 investment bank. So I I'm part of the establishment. And so I was just questioning why we were doing things. But that that testing the waters was revolutionary because it created that whole class of pre-IPO crossover buyers that became technical leads on the on the on the cap table of companies before they went public that had been had an opportunity now in private markets to do deep due diligence and to put their imprimatur, whether it's Fidelity or T. Rowe Price or in the life sciences area, Orbimed, Deerfield Perceptives that have deep life sciences expertise. And so other investors would say, okay, clearly people that know what they're doing have put money into this company. So it 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 de-risked it for the broader institutional equity market. And as a consequence, brought a lot of funds onto the cap tables when they went public, made the IPO market much more successful. And according to the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, the trade group almost instantaneously tripled the number of of life sciences IPOs, led to 18 new drug approvals in the first five years. You know, and uh, if you you listen to... uh, uh, to Moderna and uh, Lawrence Kim, who was the CFO there at the time, he said it funded their messenger RNA technology. Well, uh, according to the Economist, that saved one and a half to two million lives just from Moderna's uh, technology alone. And that's why we did this stuff. I mean, we we believe that if you're going to sh- solve big problems, it's going to be done by engineers and and scientists, and they have to get capitalized. And so. For me, as a patriot, what I want to do is I want to liberate part of that $30 trillion of public equity money that's up there, bring it down into the small uh, cap markets where the innovators and live and where you can lose money because a large company is worried about quarterly earnings and they can't lose money, so they can't do this kind of innovation. And then we want to lower the ceiling at which you can take a company public so you can get a, you can get a liquidity event earlier on and get more money to to essentially circle through at higher velocity through the entrepreneurial growth part of the market. And we think that that will sustain U.S. competitive advantage and pay for taxes, help help fund the deficit, do a lot of things that are incredibly, incredibly helpful to um, to the United States. And plus, because we're the we're the um, you know, we're, we're a market that everybody looks to in the Western world. <laughs> Excuse me. It'll allow us to. Um, and allow us to uh, maybe also get Europeans and allies, NATO allies, to be more productive with their economies. Mm-hmm. So speaking of uh, the SMB, small and mid-sized <coughs> company segments of the USA, what challenges do you see uh, in terms of you know them facing, or what challenges do you see them facing in terms of accessing capital markets? And how do you feel like some of those challenges could be addressed today? Well, I think we need a new form of stock exchange that uh, is optimized for the needs of smaller companies. The current one doesn't work. And um, it's a one-size-fits-all market that's optimized for innately liquid stocks. And it it doesn't, doesn't support, it's not optimized for the needs of innately illiquid stocks. And so 
I, we've gotten close on that. I mean, we almost got something done through Congressman Emmer's office that was wrapped into the Jobs and Investor Confidence Act of of uh, of 2018, I believe it was. And then when President Trump shut down the wall, uh, it 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 got it pushed the appropriations bill that it was supposed to have been tacked onto into the next Congress. And uh, as a consequence, legislation failed, but it had gone through the House 406 to four. So there was an appetite and it was incredibly, overwhelmingly bipartisan. That's amazing. You know, and, and so I, I think that, the, you know, that, you know, for us with our business, you know, we're in the process of doing a round of financing. As soon as we do that, we're going to start, uh, you know, doing some of the writing that we did that raises the visibility on these issues. It'll raise, obviously, the visibility on our firm, but it'll it'll uh, but but it, it, it ultimately is the fodder that uh, legislators use to to uh, create policy. And then it's just a question of hanging around long enough and getting lucky because, you know, they're, they, when they're not a lot of times you have these sort of death stars that go through the Congress where it 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 it, it sucks all the uh, all the uh you know marginal or incremental side legislation out of the equation because they're focused on the tax bill that Trump got through or the or Obamacare that Obama got through the you know and and uh or or in the in the case of the Biden administration the infrastructure bill and those things tend to be all hands on deck and you really don't get a lot of stuff done and then they run into uh their uh uh, the campaign periods, which take people's attention away. And so, you know, you, you really have to kind of constantly nurture this, the, the, you know, the, sort of the, 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 the quasi-economic papers that, that uh, create win-win value propositions. Because there's a thirst for this stuff. People that are in Congress want to do things that actually will improve the country. But a lot of what is done is not intentionally bipartisan, but rather... Uh, it's uh, it's it's lobbying for special interests. There's 12,000 lobbyists in Washington and uh, lobbying for special interests. There's only, you know, call it in round numbers, you know, 550, 560 uh, um, uh, congressmen and senators. Maybe it's 600. I don't know. But something like that. you got nearly 20 to one ratios of uh, of um, self-interested lobbyists going after uh congressmen and senators mm. now it's it's you know so you know we we we're believers that you gotta you gotta do things a little bit differently and you have to be a subject matter expert the uh, the the average congressman really has no understanding of of uh a market structure and connecting these dots and they they it is the people's house particularly in the house of representatives and so you know spending the time and and putting together uh, data and things that are simple for people to understand to show where the where the challenges are, the dysfunctions, absolutely essential to the better workings of capital markets. Because otherwise, people people tend to do things that are politically motivated and and um, and can create these great unintended consequences, which is what happened with our public markets. How, how we got to this hyper efficient, uh, trading centric, low cost. Um, uh, market that really only works for large cap and innately liquid stocks and really undermines the growth economy. Mm. 
Um, I want to just touch on something you you, you mentioned, David, about um, you, it's a, you, you see yourself as a patriot and you really want to make a difference to this uh, to this financial industry. And you have had a significant impact on the financial industry through your work at the NASDAQ, which we'll come back to in a moment. But as we have touched on now as the father of the JOBS Act. So when it comes to your influence, how do you see your own influence on the industry? And in the context now of Wield & Co., what responsibility do you feel to use your platform to drive positive change? Well, part of the reason we're in this market is, this part of the market is because this is where social impact lives. You know, this is where the innovators are the problem solvers many times. And so alternative energy, uh, electric vehicles, um, life sciences, medical devices. I mean, obviously those things have clear, positive social impact. But, you know, part of what we are doing with this decentralized model is ultimately we want to bring investment banking support into places that don't currently have it, that actually functions. And so we're already in 26 states. You know, that's a radically different model than a traditional investment bank that even the biggest of the big are have investment bankers maybe in five cities and it's typically major metropolitan areas. So, you know, we have a vision that ultimately we get a, you know, a black managing director out of Morgan Stanley that wants to go and do something for their, um, for, uh, you know, a, a an inner city community, but he needs a, an infrastructure that can support him. He's perfectly qualified to curate a deal, but stick him inside the, uh, the hood in uh, in Baltimore or someplace, and uh, he can curate transactions and he can get supported in the cloud. We think that that's a uh, you know that's that's heavy social impact and uh, but also you know because we are a lot of the people that are on our our platform are independent contractors. You know we are, we uh, they can they can have greater work life balance. You get a lot of people that get aged out of the business or they just don't want to work 70 hours a week and get on a plane to China. Uh, but they have a lot to give back and they're incredibly well qualified. And we want to keep them in the growth economy, keep them productive. And so, you know, we've got a secular change going on with the baby boomers, higher levels of dementia. So there's going to be more people that get sucked into caregiving. You've got women that uh, want to uh, be able to work from home. The biggest uh, residential real estate broker in Bronxville, where we used to live, I'm down in Nashville now, but was a was a woman who was a partner of my wife's. And she had gone to Harvard undergraduate, Harvard Business School, was a managing director in the investment bank at Morgan Stanley, but she wanted to be home with her kids at three o'clock in the afternoon. And she couldn't do that in a typical Wall Street bulge bracket firm. And so we think that that person has essential and important skills that all that training is when it's great that she can be a residential real estate br broker and now one of the biggest in Westchester. But we think that that's a, a loss for the U.S. economy, that that kind of talent. And so we'd like to be able to give women uh, and, and other caregivers uh, an option to uh, continue to do what they were trained to do and to contribute to the growth economy, because we think that that in and of itself you know, growing that that pool of highly qualified talent is essential to the long term success of the country. 
Amazing. We need more of that. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, th- I think what you're doing is uh, is amazing. Um, I'm going to just stay a little bit around your experience at the NASDAQ. So you were, you were vice chairman of the NASDAQ for some time. You mentioned you, you valued over a thousand different IPOs. You, you've had a lot of experience there around doing things at scale, passing legislation, impacting uh, the financial industry at scale. Um, and now you're uh, obviously uh, focused on Wield & Co. So I'm curious to um, get your perspective on how your experience as vice chairman of the NASDAQ influenced your approach to leading and scaling Wield & Co. Well, it, I would say that first the NASDAQ was an incredible education for me. You know, it's, it's a very few people actually work in, on, on, at a big investment bank and then you take a pay cut to do it, go to a, a stock exchange. And I was very successful on the investment banking side. I was president of the dot-com businesses of Prudential, Prudential Financial at one point, which were all the different verticals, the securities, online securities business, the insurance, the real estate, uh, bank and trust, asset management. And when I got over to NASDAQ, though, I mean, I followed my mentor. It was a gentleman named Wick Simmons, who I absolutely adore. He's ethical as the day is long. And uh, uh, Harvard... Uh, Harvard uh, undergraduate, Harvard Business School, and um, and he needed somebody to run the listings businesses there globally. So that's what I did, and uh, and partly I did it because that was the home of the growth companies, the technology companies. And so I I spent time with Steve Jobs, uh, Craig Barrett, who was the CEO of Intel, uh, met Bill Gates. I mean, it was uh, uh, Tom Stenberg, who was the founder of Staples, and. Um, and uh, so, the, but also having one foot in the regulatory pond, you know, NASDAQ's regulated stock exchange now, at the time, it was actually overseen by uh, FINRA. They were our SRO, self-regulatory organization. So I got to be very good friends with, um, with people that ran uh, the NASD, which became FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Authority. And, and, uh, and it, it educated me more about how regulators, you know, operate and work. And so all this stuff together. I dealt with our economists at NASDAQ and, and, and when we went to decimalization, how it impacted trading of share price of stocks. So it was, you know, it was an amazing education. And so, you know, I, I, I understood and I was able to connect the dots and understand what kind of dysfunction it was creating in the, uh, in the pre-IPO markets. And, um, and so I just, you know, kind of concluded that, um, uh, that uh, what this is one of the biggest problems besetting the country, and it needs somebody to be a champion to try and solve for it. And I think that uh, you know that's uh, why not me? Mm-hmm. Why not you? Indeed, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in U.S. operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown Show for more. And we're back. Um, David, I'm curious to just really get into um, some of the 
lessons that you've learned, um, not only as your time uh, at or uh, when you were at the NASDAQ, but also you've scaled companies as well. You've really been looking at a number of companies doing things at scale. When you cast your mind back at the journey that you've been on over all these years, has there been a time where you've had to make a really difficult decision? I know there's been many, I'm sure, but if there's, does something come to mind uh, for uh, for our audience around the world in terms of a really difficult decision that you've had to make um, in in you know in terms of scaling a company or not? Um, and I'd love to to find out from you what did you learn as a consequence of, of making a really tough choice, uh, either as a you know as a CEO of scaling companies or as a, at your time as vice chairman of the Nasdaq. Well. I, I think that uh, when you're deep in an area and you understand it better than anybody else, there's always that, you know, that, that challenge that um, um, it's a very complicated business and a complicated product set. And so we're trying to do something which is a little bit like, you know, Uber for investment banking or, you know, Angie's List for investment banking, want to be the Amazon.com of investment banking. But, um, you know, it, very, it, it's, a, it's a regulated business. So the venture guys generally don't like regulated businesses. So, um, uh, and they don't understand them particularly well. And they sell into them. Um, and, uh, you know, you get a lot of blank stares from people. It's a very complicated product set. We're not selling rides to people, right? We're you know, every, every industry group requires different kinds of industry expertise. Every an equity deal is different from a debt deal, uh, is different from um, a buy side M&A transaction versus a sell side M&A transaction versus equity capital markets advisory taking to IPO advisory. And so it's the reason it answers the, re- the riddle why, you know, you don't have a 20 something starting uh, a decentralized network investment bank in the cloud is because it requires a lot of uh, experience. So, you know, getting people to instantaneously understand the value is always been a little bit of the challenge. And, and um, it, you know, it, it just takes, you know, it, uh, almost an unnatural amount of commitment and perseverance. But that's the same thing that happened with the Jobs Act, right? I mean, I, I got a call from the CEO of a bulge bracket firm when we got the Jobs Act done. And he said, con- you know, congratulations, David, for going from whack job to conventional wisdom in the short space of three years. And so I, I said, I think I'm, I think that's a compliment. And he says, oh, yes, it is. He said, I said, I agreed with you. I read your work, written work. And he said, so I said, why didn't, why didn't you uh, say anything? And he said, because I knew they were going to paint you out to be crazy. Hmm. Right. And, uh, and so we, you know, we probed, I probed on that a little bit and largely because, you know, you have entrenched forces and people, you know, that, that make their living by saying that the window's open, we can do an IPO. And here I am saying, Market structure is causing the IPO crisis, right? There's something wrong with our markets. And so you have a, a lot of people that sort of deride you, sell against you. And so you just uh, have to be able to put that you know, off to the side and ignore it and have the courage of your convictions. And, um, and I think that that's probably the most important lesson. I don't struggle with tough decisions in the sense that you know, no decision frequently is a bad decision. And so you have to make a decision. Um, and uh, we all know that we're not perfect. We don't have perfect information. You have to be comfortable 
with ambiguity, particularly as an entrepreneur. You have to be willing to pivot. Nobody gets it right right at the beginning because you're not dealing with perfect information. And um, and so, uh, but but if you like problem solving and and uh, and you're achievement oriented and uh, and you think you're doing something that matters, then I think it becomes very easy, Matt, to kind of stay the course. Hmm. The I mean, I, I never thought in a million years, you know, I'd I'd help finance a company or you know that that uh, and have the, have the CFO tell me that, that that what we did with the Jobs Act actually got got them the money they needed to then ultimately set in one with one one vaccine save upwards of two million lives. Hmm. And that's quite and this stuff matters. It, it it matters. It matters in a macro scale. It you know it's it's I could have gone into the practice of medicine and but I could have never have saved or contributed to the saving. Let's just say because it's, it's a team sport, right? I don't want to take it would be crazy to t- take full credit of it, but done things that catalyze people into doing things that ultimately have saved millions of lives. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was having ice cream with my wife on a date night <laughs> on Sunday, and there was this quote up on the wall in, of this ice cream uh, cafe, um, and it was basically, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, so I'm going to bastardize it now, but basically the, the worst decision you can ever make is not making a decision at all. Um, and rather make a decision, fail and learn from it than just be paralyzed by fear, as an example. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I remember 9 11, you know, when the plane, I was on, on the telephone with my uh, executive assistant when the, and my, my office, uh, I was up at NASDAQ market site and the, my office overlooked uh, ground zero, the 50th floor, one Liberty Plaza. And I saw the, the, the plane coming into the, into the South Tower on the TV monitors, and my secretary, I heard the boom, and I, and she started screaming because it was a three second tape delay or something. So it was, you know, so I, it was a very surreal kind of um, moment. But we had people running around um, hysterical, and um, I got I get eerily calm in chaos, and you know, you just sort of because all you you know, all you know. You, you know what you know, and all you can do is make the best decision. You don't know that somebody's not going to blow off a truck bomb or fly into the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. You know that it may be a target just because it's iconic, right? And you've now seen you know, two, two, uh, uh, two World Trade Centers both get hit by jets, and America's under attack. And the rumors are going around that the USA Today building has been hit. The Pentagon has been hit. Um, and the uh, the uh, National Enquirer has been hit, you know, and all sorts of crazy stuff that didn't happen. But um, that was the environment that we were in. And so we just, you know, we made a, mis- a decision at the time to tell people, look, uh, uh, you know, let's just all admit that we don't know what's going on. We don't know the extent of it. I'm not going to keep you here. If you're not, if you're not an essential personnel, you know, if you feel compelled to go see your loved ones, or get to them, please do. Here's my at the time I was living in Manhattan. Here's my my address. If you get stuck in Manhattan, uh, you can crash, you know, on the floor of my apartment or something. And and we let all non-essential people uh, go. And then from there on, you know, we just tried to figure out what was what could we do to make the situation better, get the markets reopened, ultimately. Um, and um, you know, and and for me, this is a, this is something that very few people know. I mean, my 
my team, I was incredibly proud of. We got, uh, we sent them out trying to figure out how we could help the U.S. economy. We got them to call all the NASDAQ listed companies and they put in place over 200 corporate share repurchase programs so that when the market reopened, uh, finally, there were all these orders at lower levels, which gave the, co- the the market all sorts of confidence. And what people don't understand is the NASDAQ stock market that day traded better than the New York Stock Exchange, which is fascinating because while the market was down, okay, normally NASDAQ stocks have a, a beta of two, meaning they should have gone down twice as much as the New York, and we did better. So it worked, it, right? It gave people confidence. And the reason for that, and the reason why that was important is because you know, we needed to get America back to work. We needed to get we needed to get our economy working. So, you know, another thing I mean, is I, I you know I, I joke a little bit, but it's completely true. I was sitting in the I was sitting in the uh, in what we called the uh, fishbowl at Nasdaq Market Site with uh, with Mike Oxley of Sarbanes Oxley fame, right? And Mike was at the time the head of the House Financial Services Committee, and uh, Mike asked me, "What do you think about uh, the airline bailout bill?" And I said, I don't think I'm qualified to tell you. And he said, oh, God, don't give me that. I said, there's nobody that's more qualified. You spent your whole time on your whole life on Wall Street. I said, well, then, Mike, and if you put it that way, you're Chairman Oxley, as I said. Chairman, uh, you, uh, I don't think you have a choice. And, he's, and, he, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, look, I think you have to do it because what's going to happen is people are going to be scared to death to get on planes again. You're going to have bankruptcies. And just at the time when we're trying to get America back in business, you're going to have all sorts of higher, higher uh, air, air, air tickets, uh, airplane fares, and it's going to really inhibit uh, the, the economy from sort of getting back to where it needs to get back to some sense of normalcy. And he said, OK, then we'll do it. That was, it was just like that it was the best of America, which is, you know, normally you see everybody fighting. And right there, you know, he, he doesn't he's, he's one guy who chairs the committee. But in this particular time, if you have some things that make sense, there's no bickering. People are making decisions, and they went back and they passed the airline bailout bill. Sure, um, David. Um, I'm curious to double click on why you cope so well under pressure. I recognize the fact that you are aware that, and we, many of us are, that you sometimes you just have to choose, even if you don't have all the information, or maybe you have information that's wrong. Um, and I'm curious to understand: Have you ever wondered why that is? Because I think a lot of us could benefit from understanding why is it that you have these coping mechanisms when things are happening at scale and the impact of making a decision, like whether it's 9-11 or whether it's in the context of valuing an IPO or passing the Jobs Act, um, how have you managed to cope with uncertainty when what the decisions that you're making are really going to change entire industries or the futures of, of a lot of people? Well, I, I think that I, first I do very well in complex, you know, systems, molecular genetics and genetics, genome organization is complex systems, stock markets and the economy are complex systems. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's comfortable for me, to kind of make, you know, order out of chaos, if you will. And that, and so it helps to kind of think that way. Look, everybody's got their own sorts of, you know, intelligence. There's all sorts of different kinds of aptitudes and IQs and emotional intelligence. And that just happens to be something that I, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with. But I would tell you that 
that part of it is just the 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 process of saying of of acknowledging to yourself what you don't know and not to fret about it and to understand in the circumstances that you just need to make the best decision you can in those circumstances and to take the you know take you know to push the things that are sort of extraneous and not important out of the equation and just focus on the the nut of of what absolutely, you know, matters and can contribute. And so, you know, 9-11, I think just like a lot of Americans, I don't think there was anything that special except for the fact that I was in a place that had a bigger impact than other places. Um, I did like, you know, millions of other Americans, I did the best that I could do. You know, you know, mom's taking care of her kids and trying to keep her, her, her kids from, uh, you know, having even psychological problems and being damaged because what does all this mean? And, uh, and so we all did our, our bit and, um, and uh, you know, I, I didn't try and I couldn't possibly fix all the problems, but I could contribute with my team, some solutions to a piece of the problem. And so you have to satisfy yourself with, you know, what you, what you can do in the moment. Mm. And uh you know, and uh, I think it's probably one of the proudest, you know, proudest days of my life. I mean, working with all those corporate share repurchase programs, in some respects, I felt it was divine intervention because normally I remember the crash of 87. And I remembered that, it, you know, people were flipped out until corporate share repurchases organically came into the market. So I just happened to be in that position at that particular point in time with that, you know, that experience. And I was able to, you know, pull it uh, out and uh, and leverage it. And uh, the Nasdaq listed the biggest of the big were so insanely responsive. I mean, I remember talking to Larry Carter, who was the CFO of Cisco at the time, and and I literally had a thirty second conversation with Larry, and he said, "I get it. You know, we've had a conversation about corporate share repurchase programs with the board. In this context, you know, they'll." I'll just I think I'll be able to get this together. And sure enough, they turned around and they put a big corporate share repurchase order onto the, you know, into the market the day day the markets were reopening. We got that from Microsoft and Staples and uh, uh, Starbucks, uh, all sorts of, you know, companies. It was it's probably one of the greatest stories never told. Um, they were uh, just magnificent how how responsive they were. Sounds to me like that should be a Netflix documentary. Yeah, well, maybe at some point it will. There's all sorts of uh, little anecdotes. Uh, you know, you 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 know, we we've had a kind of a you know a blessed uh, uh, you know life in terms of the people that we've you know we've worked with and uh, things that we've gotten to do and uh, and um, look, I used to open up the Nasdaq stock market every morning and. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was holding Liza Minnelli's hand one time at the market open. I mean, uh, you know, sort of interesting things you get to do just because blessed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, mm-hmm. um, I want to change gears um, and uh, and talk to you about leadership for a moment because clearly you you've learned a thing or two about leading uh, or leadership in times of crisis, but also in good times too. Um, you've also spent time with people a lot of us haven't, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Chairman Oxley, and a lot of other CEOs also in leadership. Um, 
positions, but you know, doing things at scale also. Um, curious to get your view, uh, David. What would you say, given all your experience, is the most important quality of a leader to have when it comes to doing things at scale? I think communication is critical. Um, you know, you have to you have to communicate a vision. Uh, you have to get people to buy into the vision. They have to be emotionally connected and engaged to the vision. I mean, it's going to be part of the challenge. I think we run. Uh, in a decentralized, you know, business that depends on human capital, you're not in the office, you know, to do that sort of, you know, a lot of that bond bond building kind of experience that folks will have. But um, I think that it's, uh, you know, that if you have the right vision and you can communicate it effectively and get people to buy into it, you know, you get a lot of leverage from those people if you can't, and they can work at cross purposes and, uh and uh and and not uh not not deliver and it was the same thing in you know in in congress i mean i mean people how do we get the jobs act done i was a molecular geneticist who took no political science no poli sci didn't know how to do it thought it was important and on my own nickel i went out and i spoke 30 times a year anybody that would put me on a podium i had something interesting to say and i got in front of people that you know, people would invite me because they heard it, and then I found myself in front of uh, Mayor, Chairman Shapiro, as the SEC chair, was called up to the Hill. She couldn't speak at the American Bar Association Securities uh, Regulation lunch, and she was in Washington. She was supposed to be the keynote. They asked me to stand in. It was uh, the invitation came from John White, as a partner at Cravath, who was the former head of the Division of Corporation Finance. I made that presentation, and then. They liked what they they heard. It was interesting. It got into the SEC. I got invited out to the most important securities regulation luncheon. I got to speak in front of Congress, the House Financial Services Committee, Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government Sponsored Enterprises a large number of times. And, um, you know, it's uh, if you show up and you keep showing up and you have an important message, um, eventually, I think you can cut through the the chatter. Mm. Yeah. Perseverance, man. Just, just do that. <laughs> like if I, I think if I, if I, if someone just told me a story or just said to me, Matt, like this journey that you're going on as a first time founder, um, is, is normal, you know, it's the insanity is normal. Um, and all you need to do is burn your ships. Cause you know, that story about the general, right? So he invades the foreign land and then he tells his lieutenants to burn all the ships of his army. So they can't retreat. They have to go forward. Um, and a story like that, which I only heard like much, much later, someone had just tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, Matt, I love you, but you got to persevere through all this, you know, then that's the only way that you get to have anything of real value, um, at the end of the road. Well, and 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 look, you you know these these massive disruptions that go on in economies and markets they are they you they happen, and they happen not infrequently. You know, if you think of the crash of '87, and then you know the 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 the, the dot com bubble and what I call the bubble rubble in the aftermath of you know 2001 and two, you look at the financial crisis of 2008. You know, you and you go forward and. Uh, and I think I missed 9/11 in there. I, you know, which, uh, you know that that uh, we had COVID, right? And uh, these things are actually predictable. I gave a speech at Lafayette College. I mean, it was a the president series, entrepreneurship series, 
And I actually talked about the, the importance of getting capital into the hands of entrepreneurs to solve the great challenges of the next generation. And the first one on the list in 2015 was pandemics that we had in 2015. And so, you know, you, you know that with the world at 8 billion or whatever it is in terms of population and everybody traveling and people encroaching on animals and everything and, and the world's temperature going up, that you have the, the, the conditions to, to see a, a higher frequency of, of, of disease mutation, things being transmitted and so on and so forth. So you have to have an expectation that there's going to be more of this. So in turn, we need technologies to combat that, which is one of the reasons why I think things like messenger RNA, uh, 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 vaccines and things are so important because they shrunk the amount of time to get vaccines into, uh, you know, into market, you know? And uh, so, so for me, we have to stay ahead of, 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 of these, these challenges and the only way that we're going to do that is get more and more money into the hands of more entrepreneurs, engineers, and scientists so they can do their thing and solve and come up with creative solutions to important yeah. problems. David, I'm going to have a quick bit of fun with you. Um, I'm going to give you the keys to the uh, Matt Brown show, Time Machine. And uh, <laughs> I'd love for you to go back to yourself on day one when you started to get into uh, you know, the investment uh, industry and things like that. Um, if you could go back to yourself on day one, David, and give yourself one piece of advice, if you think about all the things you've learned over the decades of experience that you've uh, put under your, your belt to date, what advice would you give yourself uh, about doing things at scale, scaling companies, scaling uh, investments, scaling your impact and influence on the world? Well, I... I'm not sure I would change anything. I mean, I mean, I, on the one hand, if I wanted to make more money, I wouldn't have moved around and been the, you know, the the soldier for the CEO of Prudential Securities. I got moved around into a lot of different positions, and you know, in an investment bank, when you get a business really working and making a lot of money, you're going to get a bigger bonus. And so now they give you another train wreck or or a new new business to start. But but the things that they they had me do taught me a lot, and. Uh, and I think that all of those lessons have come important. They inform me, have come in, uh, come in handy. They, they inform me, uh, taught me a lot about market structure. And, uh, and uh, I would never have been able to write the papers that I wrote that, that helped Congress understand uh, what the challenges were in the IPO market and the listings market. And I never would have probably started this business. So, you know, I think you can always regret you know, doing things, but every one of the things that I've done along the way has taught me something, and uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it. You know, and, and and frankly, you know, the things that I failed at miserably, I learned the most about. You know, when something blows up in your face, it's easy to be successful. You know, and it's, but you know, but you learn so much more when you have to clean up. You know, your own mistake, and. Uh, and uh, you know you understand the, the 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 repercussions and it and you you kind of learn to some degree how to you know at least not repeat that mistake again. And I um, and I remember one time I was telling a young uh, then a young woman who was running London Equity Syndicate for me, um, and she had just uh, found herself naked short 
on an IPO allocation, a bunch of stock, and she lost um, 100,000 bucks or something. And uh, she came to me with the short you know, problem and was expecting me to fire her. And, uh, and I said, uh, Jane, I said, uh, uh, everybody makes mistakes. You'll never make that one again. You know, and so I, I, I wouldn't, would never fire you because you've, I've just, I've just invested a hundred thousand dollars in your education. You know, if it's an honest mistake that you make, you know, the challenge is we all make mistakes. It's being able to, um, Fix them, and I'm, frankly, I was I was really impressed by the fact that she didn't try and you know cover it or do anything. She just brought it to me, and, and that you know that's somebody that's somebody that's worthy of trust. Yeah, it's uh, and it's easy to get on the wrong side of those options tradings. <laughs> I've been learning about securities lately, as I mentioned like to you before. I'm really in my doing more of my exams and things, and I tell you what, options is a. Uh, when you when you're coming in cold, <laughs> you can get on the wrong side of that if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, that's a, that, that you know that's exactly right. And so you know, look, there's no perfect people, and uh, you know, and, uh, and my my biggest you know fear sometimes is that I feel like I've got uh, you know all the tools that I need now to really make an even bigger contribution, and. Um, I hope that I got enough runway in this life to be able to make that contribution because I think that the economic infrastructure that we leave behind is will be the toolkits that allow the next you know generation to compete against uh, you know formidable and larger adversaries. I think it's essential to democracy that we get these things done properly and that we uh, um, we we overachieve. Because our competitors and our adversaries are certainly hell bent at at um, out outlasting us. Mm-hmm. David, thank you so much for being on the Map Round Show. Uh, it's been a real privilege getting uh, to learn more about you and the incredible impact you've had um, on many, many people. So, thank you for your time. It's been a real privilege having you here. Yeah, nice to see you, Matt. Cheers, David.